Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking with Bella Malloy, an avid cyclist, a podcaster, and a business owner. Bella runs the podcast Seek Travel Ride. In today's episode, we talk with Bella about her experience on the Normandy Cat 900, a 900-kilometer cycling race that has to be done in 73 hours. We talk about the mental, physical, and emotional struggles that she went through and how she overcame them to be the first woman to complete the race. Let's get to the episode. My name is Bella Malloy. As you can hear from my accent, I am Australian, but I live in a little Pyrenean village in the French mountains in the Pyrenees. And it was my passion which brought me here. I'm a real keen cyclist, so I quit my corporate career in Australia at the end of 2019 and found myself moving to this side of the world in 2020, just before the pandemic hit. Took a while to get to France, but since then I have established a cycling business called Seek Travel Ride, and I also run the Seek Travel Ride podcast. What did you leave to become a full-time cycling nut? Oh gosh, I think I was a cycling nut before anything else, but I was I was consulting and I was consulting in the defence industry in Australia in areas of work health safety, quality, risk management, injury management, and something which I often call adult daycare, which is human resources. So, so I guess people management as well. What was the thing that kind of made you quit that corporate lifestyle and move halfway across the world to start cycling? Cycling has been a big part of my life since I was young. I I grew up in a household that wasn't a very happy household. Uh, my mother, I grew up in a domestically violent household, actually. And so from as soon as I could get myself onto two wheels, I found it as my sort of escape machine quite often. And cycling was always a constant in my life in terms of it was, would I call it a coping mechanism? I'm not sure. But it it was certainly an escape to a peaceful place. And I stopped cycling as a teenager but rediscovered it as an adult and along with my husband and, and did what many people in Australia do, you know, went on bike rides, joined a cycling club, found an enthusiasm for pushing myself physically and mentally and, and you know, signing up for long rides. But I also grew up with the Tour de France on my TV screen and used to watch it. In Australia, it's on ridiculous hours. It's on, you know, like it, it, the coverage doesn't start till like 11 o'clock at night. And so often I'd be like camped out on the couch, couch bleary-eyed watching it. And I was always captivated more by the vistas in France than necessarily the cycling itself. Even though I'm a passionate cycling fan and I watch the sport, I couldn't get over just what I was seeing. You know, I'm Australian some of the oldest things we have in Australia since, you know, you know, buildings and whatnot are really not that old at all. And all of a sudden I'm introduced to this country that's got so much cultural history and such a different type of natural beauty than what I'm used to back at home. So my husband and I in 2013 went on what was called a bucket list holiday, and that was to be in France for three weeks while the Tour de France was on. And during that time we took our bikes over with us from Australia as well, and during that time, we followed the tour a little bit. We went to all the famous cycling regions and pitted ourselves on the roads, that you know, big climbs and whatnot. We spent six days in the Pyrenees, and I didn't know it at the time, but I guess I fell in love with the mountains and the Pyrenees lifestyle. It got deep inside me. At the end of that trip, in the airport lounge waiting to board our flight, the long flight back to Australia, 
my husband was a bit the same and we both chinked glasses and said, we don't know how we're going to do it, but we've got to get back here. So we saved up lots of money, bought extra annual leave for a few years preceding that and made multiple trips back to go back with our bikes and cycle in this beautiful country. And in 2018, it was the second trip back that we had also brought other friends with us. So we brought a group of friends with us. I think there was 14 of us all up and we hosted them in the Pyrenees and took them touring through each day, took them on a ride that transported them to the top of Tour de France climbs to places no, you know, you don't know exist unless you live here, showed them some hidden areas that we had built up a knowledge about through some, you know, earlier trips. And every one of those people on those trips sort of took us aside, my, my husband and myself and said, you do this really well. You've, you've learned so much about the country. You've got so much experience. You've given us, you know, the holiday of a lifetime. Have you ever thought of actually doing this as your job? And I hadn't. And I always thought, well, they're your friends and your friends have to say nice things about you. That's why they're your friends. So you appreciate getting positive feedback, but. I guess, Kyle, it came at a point in time where my corporate career probably wasn't filling me with joy. I I found that I was wishing my Monday to Friday away and living just for, you know, my days off on the weekend, which invariably was spent on a bike. And my husband was probably a little bit the same, maybe not to the same situation that I was. But we both came back home from that trip and thought, we keep trying to find ways to get ourselves back here to France. We love the cycling. We love the riding. Maybe our friends aren't just being nice. Maybe all this skill and expertise we've built up is something that we could follow. You know, we're at a stage in life where we've chosen not to have children. We don't have them holding us down. You know, we're professionals in the corporate world. And, you know, just because we move countries, our skills don't necessarily disappear. So there's always a safety net that we could fall back on. But I guess long story short, we sold our house uh, over the period of a year. We sold a lot of our possessions. We figured out how we were going to make this work. And we jumped on a plane in February 2020 and... Like I said, thanks to a protracted time due to COVID, we finally bought our house and settled here in the Pyrenees in 2021. So <laughs> the end of 2021. And now we do run that cycling business. We run an online website and we aim to help people to plan their holidays, their cycling adventures here in France. And we are travel advisors. That's an incredible story. <laughs> It's a short, yeah, I feel like I feel it's like it's a real short part of it, if that makes sense. It's a summary. Uh, there's a lot of things that happen between making that decision and even just selling everything to get on the flight from Australia. And we definitely had a lot of time before actually making it here physically to France due to COVID. So, which which took its toll, but you know. Yeah, I guess the passion for, for a life here in France and the yearning to pursue this thought of let's change that drive to try and find a drive that makes you not wish, you know, five days of a week away, but makes you want to feel like you're living seven days a week. And that was always there. So even when our dream at times felt unreachable, we had this internal goal and motivation to keep pushing forward. So you said your friends really encouraged you to kind of go do this. 
I'm assuming they were on board. What about family? Did you get any people that were like, what are you doing moving to France, starting a cycling business? Yeah, so it's interesting. I guess it's probably relevant to say that whilst both my husband and myself were born and raised in Australia, our families were not from Australia. So my family's emigrated from Greece and Italy and my husband's family emigrated to Australia from Northern Ireland. And so I guess to some degree, they themselves had a personal experience of moving to the other side of the world. My parents were very much of the view that they had moved to this side of the world, you know, to Australia to raise me in a way that created opportunities so that I had opportunities to me that they didn't necessarily have. And so they were really positive and welcoming of pursuing this goal, not without a touch of maybe guilt trip sadness at the idea that we would be far away. And my husband's parents, you know, my mother and father-in-law, were also really encouraging. I think that they knew, how, you know, we we cycling had become such a big part of our lives. I think they knew that it was something that we were serious about when we started talking, we're selling our house now. And I guess there was a sadness and a realisation that if we're on the other side of the world, there's going to be less times to be able to see us face-to-face and whatnot. But they also realise that we live in an age of technology, which means that whilst we're far away from a distance point of view, it's not so bad. Now, we left Australia and and this was part of, you know, COVID impact on us. When we left Australia, COVID didn't really exist. You know, it was sort of like really tucked away deep in a news broadcast. And so we left Australia knowing that whilst it will literally take us a full day in the air to fly back home if we needed to in an emergency, we knew that can buy yourself a ticket and you can get home it will take you a day to get there but you could get back in a day if you needed to but I think like COVID did with other people it it provided opportunities and ways to see that you can stay in touch growing up in Australia it's not like we live in a country that's so small that you know you're used to growing up and having holidays where you might be in a car for 10 hours on a road trip and that's seen as sort of semi-normal so the distances are quite large as it is and where we were living in Australia was actually quite a distance away from our from our family anyway. Uh, you know, my my I live 14-hour drive away from my parents. They live in a different state to what I did in Australia. And, you know, we were over five and a half hours away from my husband's parents. So to some degree, whilst you're definitely so much further on the other side of the world, it's not like we were seeing each other every day or every week anyway. So... I kind of want to transition maybe a little bit into this event you did coming up on a year ago. Yeah, Normandy Cat 900 is, is something that, you know, it's coming up close to a year now since I completed that. And it's still one of those events that I look back at with a sense of, did I actually do that? <laughs> and uh, Because it is actually quite crazy when I when I break things down. For your listeners, you know, obviously the question is, well, what are we talking about So I guess there's cycling and there's cycling and there's different types of it. And I'm passionate about cycling in many different ways. I I ride a road bike, a mountain bike, a gravel bike. I commute and do all my shopping on a bike. I actually have taken the decision not to own a car here in France. So I, I do everything on a bike. And I cycled quite regularly and, you know, at a, at a high fitness level, obviously it's part of my business. But Normandy Cat took that cycling to the next level because what it is, it's a, it's a, 
It's an event in the category of ultra-distance cycling. So ultra-distance cycling by its name is a clue that you're pushing yourself to your limits going ridiculous distances in a short amount of time. So the Normandy Cat 900 event involves, I guess, connecting eight checkpoints in the in and around the department of Normandy in northern France. It also goes into a few neighbouring departments, oh, in a few neighbouring departments and different checkpoints as well. But you have to connect eight checkpoints and, and get back to the start finish line. It's all self-supported, so you have no outside assistance whatsoever. If the bike breaks down, I need to fix it. I need to be self-sufficient for food. I can go to a store, but I can only access support and help from commercially available options that any participant could access. So I couldn't, you know, have a support crew up the road and give me food and drop off water or set up, you know, book accommodation for me. You have to be fully self-sufficient in what you carry and how you get there. And... There's also a time limit involved. So the event starts at 10 o'clock at night and you have 73 hours to get yourself to the finish line to be noted as an official finisher of the event. Those last two points, the fact that it starts at 10 o'clock at night and that there was a time limit, were totally unknown to me before I signed up. So I signed up for a uh, a challenge which would which is roughly 900 kilometers or 913 kilometers in my in my instance with the with the route that I mapped out I signed up knowing it would be a long event I didn't realize how short a period of time I had to actually complete it or that I would be starting and cycling through an entire night straight off the bat I've never done this before A quick editor's note here I'm about to say something that is a little incorrect I equate 900 kilometers to three to 400 miles. The actual distance is 559 miles. That is a crazy experience. Starting at 10 p.m. and you got 73 hours to complete 900 kilometers, which is what, like 420 miles or 400, 385 miles? It's a lot of miles. Yeah, it is it actually even a little bit more than that. I'm not sure. It might be. It, 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 it. I was wondering whether it was around 500 miles. But yeah, it's 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 crazy. Sorry, I don't I don't know the conversion off my hand. But I should look at Google. I should know this. But whatever it is, it's crazy. Like in my mind, it took a lot of cycling for many hours of each of those days, and not a lot of rest to make sure that I got back in time. And that was. To be honest with you, I had never done this before. I was a fan and in awe of people who have done these events before. And I guess like anything, once you start knowing there's a niche in your sport and you start tuning into it and following it and seeing the stories of people that are doing it, you sort of sign up to an echo chamber unwittingly because that gets thrown back at you with an algorithm and I don't know that the word normalize is quite the right word to use because I don't think that what I did or what they do is normal and I can understand that and I can intrinsically see how you have to be a little bit uh, or crazy, as the French would say, to actually sign up for something like this. But what inspired me was the fact that Sarah Hammond, Lael Wilcox, Emily Chappelle, Lee Craigie, Jenny Graham. I, I'd seen instances of women doing amazingly well and being at the pointy end of the field in this space. And I had always wondered, oh, I wonder 
is that something I could ever do? Like, you know, the, the, the enthusiastic cyclist who could push themselves to a ridiculous amount and, you know, spend maybe 12, 13 hours of day cycling. But did I have it in me to actually flip it and spend, say, 20 hours a day cycling? And could I do that 20 hours a day three times in a row? <laughs> I don't know. And I was curious enough to find out that answer and needed a goal to focus on having just endured probably the toughest period of my adult life in a foreign country during a pandemic. And I wanted something that would focus me so much mentally and physically. And that's what I chose to do. And yeah, I signed up. I love that little question of, could I do that? And I see all these other people doing it. Like, could I do that? If I set my mind to it, is that something I can actually do? And so many cool stories start off that way. But just looking at somebody else and saying, could I do that? I think I could probably do that. Like, they're just a person. I'm a person. What's stopping me? Yeah. And and I guess for me, there's elements of could I do that, that I, you don't know until you turn up to the start line. And actually turning up to the start line was something I didn't know if I could do in the first place. I signed up and it was just under six months from when I signed up to the start line. So, you know, six months to turn myself into a an okay competent cyclist, into an ultra endurance athlete. Obviously I did it, so it's enough time, but it's not a lot of time, which may be good and bad. It, it makes you condense and utilize your time a lot better. The thing with the ultra and distance cycling that I felt I could handle was I know that it's just really about pedaling the bike that I have so normalized that it's actually not just pedaling a bike. There's a lot of things that come up that you don't even realize exist at the time. But if I was to compare it to say extreme downhill mountain biking, I watch those athletes with awe and I know that I couldn't do it. <laughs> like I, I I just don't have the wherewithal to, to launch myself off a 30, 40 foot jump or something like that, or, you know, into, into ridiculously steep terrain. But this is a part of cycling that I'm comfortable with. And so I wanted to push the boundaries on and, and yeah, answer that curious question. Can I do that too? I don't know. Let's see how we go. <laughs> so you talked about there for a second, turning yourself from, you know, an okay cyclist into an ultra endurance athlete. What are some things you might've learned in that transformation? I spent a lot of time on my bike as an okay cyclist stopped and and enjoying the view and taking a lot of breaks that I probably didn't need to, whereas I guess, and, and not so concerned about other things like, you know, when you sign up for an ultra distance event, there's there's one thing to be set up on a bicycle that you're okay to sit on for say three or four hours but it's a very different kettle of fish to all of a sudden become a cyclist that can be comfortable on a bike for say 20 hours i should use the word comfortable in inverted brackets there but your commas because there is so much you, you you sign up to this event knowing that you are going to be in pain at some point you are going to suffer and you're going to be uncomfortable so, you know, that that's something that I, you know, in training that you realise. The other things you realise is that, and you have to do this in steps. You can't just, you know, cycle, you know, 60 miles and all of a sudden decide that you can now do, you know, 240 miles because you, you know how to do the 60, whilst it literally is just turning your feet around the pedals and just not stopping. There's a lot of it that's mental, and that mental side of cycling there's a mental element to that, but it's a total different mental ball game when you're in the ultra endurance world. 
because the things that you're not sure that you can sustain come at you thick and fast. You also realise there's a lot more emotions that we have as humans that you just don't even realise are there until you're on the extremes of, you know, endurance and fatigue. Uh, I certainly, it's so cliche, but the emotional roller coaster that you go on during these events, once that fatigue kicks in and, you know, that first night setting off at 10 o'clock at night, I had a lot of fears and anxieties about how I would go doing that. Like, Leading up to the event, I remember choking with my husband at, you know, quarter to not, quarter to 10 every evening going, oh, maybe I'll just get up now and go on my bike and just ride it for three days as a joke because I thought I have to do that in two weeks. Like what sort of crazy person does that? You know, I had experience of riding for, you know, maybe 45 minutes or an hour at a time in the dark, you know, for many years beforehand as part of my normal cycling, I used to do it before going to work in Australia, but I'd never ridden for hours on end needing to change lights and, you know, make sure batteries are charged because my lights that I have set up won't last a full night unless I change that. You know, I hadn't had to think of these complexities. And you learn a lot about yourself in the training to it. Sometimes you learn things that you don't like about yourself as well and you have to learn about how to to deal with that too. And and that's something that that you know doesn't necessarily come out until you're pushing the envelope and pushing those limits too. I guess I knew within myself and like I said part of the reason for signing up for this challenge was I was going through some mental health stuff. I'm an anxious person and I wanted to have something so big and bold that would focus me towards a goal that that I, you know, that that would retain my focus and attention and dedication to and so I picked this. And I guess ultra distance cycling there's a few clichés. One is it's not about cycling, it's about an eating competition and how you learn about nutrition. You that that's certainly a difference to normal cycling, you know. You, as soon as as soon as you stop eating and you're in an ultra distance event, that's when things will rapidly go downhill. It's also amazing how much food is linked to emotion as well. And when you're having a low moment, just stopping and having a coffee or or some food and just waiting it out for 15 minutes will will set you and transform transform your mind that way as well. But it's also a problem solving event. You, especially because it's self supported, you have to build up the skills that you can become self-reliant and the things that normally would, you know, I can go on a training ride if my bike breaks, I can fix most things. But if something gets really bad, I can call some backup and I can get out of there. Well, if I do that in an ultra distance event, I can always call someone to help me, but that's going to disqualify me. (laughs) So you sign up for it knowing that you need to find that own inner resilience to get you through those problems. And so similar to wondering how would I go starting at 10 o'clock at night, especially being an anxious person, my solution to that was doing a lot of if this happens, then I will do this type of scenarios. I literally put a spreadsheet together and I put down all of my anxieties into that spreadsheet of the if this scenario and then the then what scenario. And I, I learned that I did have the ability to start thinking about my concerns and my anxieties and actually finding solutions for them, which I'm happy I did because I actually had to use some of my backup plans during the event. Um, Some of those if this happens scenarios did actually happen. (laughs) 
What were some of those scenarios that actually happened? Oh, gosh. So, so straight off the bat, the first thing that happened, I set off and the weather was miserable. The forecast for my three days leading up to the event for ages, as soon as I could tap into long-range weather forecasts, I did, right? And they were meant to be amazing. It was meant to be sunny weather. It was going to be quite warm. It wasn't going to be very cold overnight. And there was going to be no rain and no real wind. And the big thing with Normandy when you sign up is, you know, it's up to you how you're going to connect these checkpoints. There's an intuition about it because you pretty much make a circle. Well, it's not quite a circle. There's a few deviations, but you make a circle. And the biggest thing to consider is the direction of the wind. And I had looked at this and thought, okay, you want to have it so that you have a prevailing wind at your back for that final day when you're the most tired. The assistance you could have at your back is what you want. And I thought, okay, according to weather data, I should be going clockwise and that will be great. And so I set my route, my route map clockwise for that. And of course, the weather was nothing like it was forecast. It poured with rain for most of the first two days. And I had somehow managed to make a route in a circle in the weather system pattern that somehow was a perpetual headwind. And that final day, when it wasn't a headwind, it was a really strong cross cross headwind. So it wasn't quite in my face, but it may as well have been, especially, you know, almost three days into it. And when you're designing something where you are responsible for your route and and how you will you know navigate in cycling we have these great devices they're gps units you can you can put together a route map on there you can download it onto your device you attach it to the front of your handlebars and it'll go and make funny noises and tell you when to turn left turn right go straight through a roundabout and all those sort of things well mine was a touch screen and unfortunately because of the rain the touch screen went haywire and that meant that all of a sudden my device stopped working. So I was literally three or four hours into this event that would, you know, potentially take me over three days to navigate all of a sudden with a device that was useless because it couldn't navigate anymore because it had it had broken. And my problem solving there was one of my, if this happens, then I will do scenario was, you know, we are an amazing time in in this day and age where we have such an amazing device in most of our pockets called a smartphone. And whilst they can still make phone calls and send messages, really we use it for other things. And so I had the presence of mind to think that my, you know, cycling computer might break. And if it does, I had to have the presence of mind to download offline maps on my smartphone to have it in a way that I could attach it to my bars and navigate from there. That was the that was one of the first scenarios of the if this happens then what what sort of things. But yeah, I mean that happening like within the first few hours of this crazy night that I was cycling right through, that was that was nuts. The other thing that I had done and problem solved, and I actually think this was probably I attribute my success in this event a lot to the support that I was able to facilitate along the way. And by that, I mean emotional support because there's obviously no one's physically there for you. You know, seeing people, is that's just not the boost that you can get. But the events have tracking. So each person signs up to a tracking system and it emits a track through your phone and it lets people know where you are on the route. And so I decided I would need some sort of emotional support because I knew I would get pretty down. And when I'm pretty down, that's when I could be maybe 
thinking I don't have the emotional resilience to keep going and maybe that would be a weak point where I may quit. And so with my if that happens scenario, I had sent this tracking dot to friends and family and said, hey, everyone, I'm doing this ridiculously crazy event. You can track me along the way. It'd be really great if you feel like it to just send random messages of support if you are tracking me. I can't respond to them, but I will see them and I know that they will give me a lift. And when you sign up to an ultra distance event of this magnitude, you know that you're going to have low moments. and Typically they come in around day two and my day two was horrendous. And I did have moments during that time where I felt so low that the opportunity to just say enough's enough and scratch from the event and say, I'm out of here. I gave it my best kept coming thick and fast, but that hack of, having that emotional support, just constantly pinging messages. I don't think I could have gone a period of 10 or 15 minutes without a random messaging coming my way. And I guess the benefit of being in Australia was that when Australia was online, it was, you know, the middle of the night or something in France. I had friends over here in Europe, so I had people in America. And those messages were constant. And so I had people telling me they believed in me and that allowed me to get through my low moments to believe in me as well to keep going. There was a real low point where I saw a signpost which would get me to a village that was only eight kilometres from the finish line. The, 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 the town was called Cannes in northern France and there was a signpost for it and it said it would be 30 kilometres away, so just roughly just under 20 miles. And at that point I was so low and had I think 450 kilometres still to navigate And I knew that if I wanted to, I could just have this all over and done with in like 20 miles. And I I needed all that emotional support that I had hacked to to get me through to not to not say give up on this and and keep going for the best part of just under two days to get yourself there. So, you know, there's some sort of ridiculous examples that I had used um, that problem solved. So, yeah. That is one of my favorite things to teach people how to do and you embodied it so perfectly of what's the worst that can happen what happens if my little gps unit on my bike breaks well i've got a good backup it's my smartphone what happens if i get emotionally low well all these people are sending me sending me support and you know you you totally hacked that where you had people all over the world that's such a huge thing It is. And, you know, it's interesting. So I host a podcast and one of my guests that I recently interviewed, uh, Paul Dottilly, he, his story is amazing. He, he decided he saw someone cycling on the Premier Highway and he was watching from his home in Paris and thought, my gosh, I want that experience. I want to do that. So what did he do? He, He bought the same bike and the same equipment and set up and decided he was going to cycle to her there. His training ride involved just cycling two kilometres around a park. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he, he was cycling through to Central Asia and, and, and he turned himself into an ultra-distance cyclist. He, he got so extreme he sent his tent and his cooking gear home just before hitting the desert because he wanted to go lighter so he could go faster and further. That's another story, right? But he spent so much of this time alone and it was clear when I was talking to him that he's sort of a bit of an extrovert. And one of my questions for him, Kyle, was, did you get lonely? You were on your own so much. How did that impact you? And he said, I didn't feel lonely until I was in cities. 
And I wasn't lonely because I didn't realize it at the time, but I started sharing my story on social media. And because I was sharing, I had people to share with and I never felt that I was on my own. And I got excited more about what I was doing rather than lonely. And that's another example of that emotional support and the power of emotional support. There's a lovely, um, you know, inspiring ultra cycling athlete called Emily Chappelle. And in her book, she calls it the power of the invisible peloton. A peloton, for those that don't know it, is a group of cyclists that, that ride together in a group. That's, you know, the term of when you see a group of cyclists on the road, that's a peloton. And she calls it the power of the invisible peloton experience on Normandy Cat. I, I did some filming on my phone while it was pointed at me on my handlebars. It's not a great visual video if people want to look at it. It's, it's often just looking at my tired face. But it's interesting over that time, I see my emotional ups and downs of when I'm high and low. But what I did on that video was I kept popping up in like message bubbles, all the messages that I got throughout that time. And you can't go, you know, more than a few seconds on that video without those messages is constantly popping up. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself for finishing, but I just feel so loved and amazed that I have this support network that helped me get through it. The emotional support is huge in almost everything we do. And I kind of want to relate that back to talking about how much mental effort it takes to do something like this. If you were to give like a percentage of, you know, it's 10% physical, 90% mental, what do you think your breakdown would be on day one versus day three? Oh my gosh, on day three, it's like 95% in the head. Uh, on day one I think you're at the stage where it's probably 60 40 in the head because you're fresh and so if you've done the training you know that you can achieve things there's still an uncertainty there before lining up to this event the most I had ever ridden distance wise was I'm trying to think of it in miles off the top of my head maybe 150 miles possibly a little bit less say 120 miles that was the longest distance of a day and I didn't know how I was going to be going, you know, adding an extra 60, 70 miles on top of that day after day for three days. So the first day you have doubts and there's still a lot that's in the head. The second day, that's, that's when the balance totally tips because physically you're, you're starting to show the signs of that first massive effort and mentally it's what's telling you that you need to get through these low moments. So I think day two, you're probably starting the, you know, 70, 30, it's, it's more in the head, but by day three, it's 95%. And you know what? I got the best little bit of advice hours before the event. I had, I had one of those, if this happens, what next moments, Kyle, before the race actually started in that, to, to get myself to the start line, there was a big impetus from the organisers to be climate conscious. And so I live in the south of France in the Pyrenees. This event is in the very north in Normandy. And so I decided to take a train to get there. And that involves sort of dismantling your bike a little bit. On, on the TGV, I couldn't get my bike booked as a fully assembled bike. So I had to just take, you know, the wheels off to switch the handlebars, take the derailleur off and things like that. And in putting it back together, I had noticed just in the small ride from the train station to the hotel where I was staying the night before that my gears weren't shifting quite rightly and were really bad. <laughs> this is not a good scenario just before you undertake the biggest cycle ride of your life. And so I was a bit panicked. 
the next morning when I discovered this and thought I'm meant to be standing up at a start line in a few hours and my bike's about to break and I don't know why it was you know I thought well I can go to a bike store now so I'm going to do it and the mechanic in the bike store did some did some magic to get me it was a hack that he put together but it got me through the event thankfully and I didn't have a mechanical whew but he gave me the biggest tip and it's a French saying for these events Commencer avec les jambes, finir avec la tête, which translates to you will start with the legs, but you will finish with the head. And it's so, so true. Like even just saying that out loud, I know it sounds silly, but I've actually just given myself goosebumps because I just know how 100% factually correct that statement is. I'm not someone that puts like these aspirational statements and quotes as features on their house and their walls. But it's something that within me and inside me, I know since I've done this, I know that that statement rings true for me. Yeah, I'm going to start something physically with my legs, but it's actually going to be the mental willpower and the mental strength that I'm building up that's going to help me endure. I signed up to this event with six months worth of training and six months worth of doubts and six months worth of being able to put those what if this happens scenario into my little spreadsheet and then when, unbeknownst to me, but every time I had a question there, I was training physically, but mentally I was starting to build these things in the bank of what I can endure. You know, physically, what can you endure in the heat, riding through the heat? It's it's going to be wet weather. I did training rides when it was raining and miserable. You know, how will I go riding my bike loaded? Because obviously on a self-supported ride this length, you're actually you're not just on a bike that doesn't have anything on it. You've got your food, you've got your clothing, you've got your electronics, you've got everything there. So, you know, you're actually strapping extra weight onto your bike. Well, how will I prepare myself for that? Well, I'm going to go on a three-day tour with my bike loaded as if it's in the event and, and I'll see physically what can I do. On that trip, I had to endure the worst winds, headwinds, and, and I have ever endured it, like literally almost bringing me to the stop there's a famous wind in the south of France called the Mistral. And when it rages, which is in wintertime, the wind speeds were phenomenal. The wind speeds I had were, I think there were wind speeds of like 56 nautical miles, knots an hour, like it, ridiculous wind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like when I say literally bring you to a stop, I was literally brought to a stop and almost blown over just standing still on the road. <laughs> But I had endured that windy day ridiculously. I, you know, at points I didn't think I was ever going to get anywhere. But because I endured that, when it turned out that Normandy was a horrendous headwind all the time weather forecast, that you know, it wasn't forecast, so that's what the conditions I got. Mentally I had it in the back, hey, you went through those ridiculous winds. This headwind's horrible, but you've got this. You can keep going. So I had questions for all those doubts. Which, which I didn't realize I was building those answers to when I was training, but boy, did I use them and make some big mental deposits. I also got goosebumps when you said you start with your legs, but you finish in your head. Mm. It's that statement is so true. It's so many things other than just cycling. I, I run. That's my kind of escape, I guess. Yep. Yep. Is just, you know, a three, four mile run every morning nothing too crazy. I, I, I'm not the marathoning type. Um, but I've done these type of events before where it's a, an overnight, it's 200 miles and you've got basically 24 hours to complete it. And you're on a team of 12 people. 
and you each have these assigned legs where you run and then you get back in the car for a few hours and then you run again, you get back in the car for a few hours and you run again. And a hundred percent, the first leg, you know, first 10 miles you run, your legs are fine. You're feeling great. And then the next one's in the middle of the night and you're like, I've never done this before. And then that last one, um, the last one I did was four or five years ago and I had a three mile leg. You know, it's that last three miles where you're completely on your own and you got no support from your van that's like cheering you on and you're you're running almost to the finish line. You're the second to last one. The the last guy's running the finish line. You got to meet him in three miles and you just know that like everybody's waiting for you and there's so much pressure and it is all in your head that you just kind of keep going. It's one foot in front of the other over and over and over and over again. So, yeah, it. I completely, man, I got goosebumps just flowing because I yeah. know that is how it is. And like what you said there, you know, this is just three miles. It's not like the biggest distance in the world. And you, I'm imagining, Kyle, this is a relay event. So you even know the terrain that you're running on. You've done it before. You know what to expect. But, yeah, it's just like, oh, my gosh. Like it's the pain that builds up during, you know, repetitive times of doing something that you don't get in training. Like something that I was saying there, you know, the longest training ride or group of training days that I did, I did a tester. It was about um, six weeks or seven weeks before the actual event. And I was at a stage where I'd actually received some horrendous news of a previous colleague that I had worked back in Australia had passed away. And it was bizarre because I, I don't know, this sounds horrendous, but I had received news that they were ill before it actually left Australia and had been told that their cancer was terminal. And I had just wrongly assumed that they had already passed away. But then I received the news that actually they had just recently passed and that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I still can't put a, a reason on it, but I remember it knocked me around in my training and that was enough to get more doubts in my mind and, and whatnot. And so I thought, I don't know that I can do this event, but I need to do something big now to prove that maybe I'm on the right track because I'm on the precipice of maybe not getting myself to the start line. And I might just say quickly, when I signed up for this event, my definition of success was actually getting to the start line. And whatever happened there was unknown and I didn't know how I was going to be. And if I got to the start line, then I was successful in and, in and of myself there. But I decided to try on this test ride of two days of getting up really early in the dark. So I would have experience of riding in the dark here in my home in the Pyrenees and riding to Bordeaux. I, over the course of those two days, rode 475 kilometres, I believe. The first day I rode 260 kilometres and the second day I rode 225 or 215 kilometres. And they were the first back-to-back days that I had and I pulled up really well from that and I thought oh physically I'm okay I my nutrition was on point I really did all these things right so going into Normandy when I got to the start line remember that was my success I so nearly pulled out even five minutes before I was just a bundle of nerves but the thing is there's a point physically on these long events and you don't know this because you can't you can't ride those distances in training. It, you, you just, well, maybe some people do, but but the recovery required to do massive days, like 470 kilometres in two days is a massive 
effort and took a lot of recovering from. But bear in mind that in, you know, six weeks later, I was going to have to do almost double that in three days. It's not until you actually physically push over a certain threshold that uncomfortable problems physically start to manifest themselves. Day one, I think I was the most alert and aware I've ever been in my entire life. I rode through an entire night and I didn't stop pedaling until I reached, I think I had 21 hours had elapsed and I had ridden 385 kilometers. Ridiculous. Like that in itself was already, you know, 125 kilometers further than I had ridden in my longest ever distance, which is also ridiculous. But I say that loud, loud in my head and still don't, I still sometimes think, was that Bella Malloy that did that or was that someone else? And I was okay physically. And I knew that on day two, when I got up that, oh, my legs are going to hurt. Similar to your experience of running that three miles, the fatigue has built up now. Oh my gosh. What I didn't realize was I, I, my my sit bones were just in severe agony as soon as I sat on my bike. I had the worst problems on my sit bones from pressure sores that I had never, ever experienced ever as a cyclist and ever in training. And it's because I went over that threshold that I hadn't done. Boy, did that take 100% of mental willpower to get through. <laughs> so uh, just craziness. Things that you don't realize are going to happen start happening, and then you have to problem solve. And you go, well, "How are you going to deal with that? How am I? How how am I going to convince myself I can keep going and not give up?" I got to a stage where early on day two, I couldn't comfortably stay seated in my bike seat for you know minutes on end like I normally would, and I would have to do this for hours on end. So I had to shift around, and it changes the way you pedal, it changes what gears you use, and everything. And so it changes things physically. I started to get some slight knee pain. My hands were starting to go numb in different ways because I'm you know propping myself up on the bike differently. I'm favoring one side more than the other, and it just manifests as this thing. But you realize that. You have to find the reason within yourself to not give up. And I guess if I had given up, I probably could have justified it in my mind. If I'd given up on day two, because I did a, you know, I I went so far on day one. I've never done that before. How awesome. And unfortunately, I had these injuries and I couldn't keep going. And maybe I could have justified it as being the right decision if that had occurred. But gosh, I'm glad I kept going. I remember listening to a podcast once that that was talking about decisions and when you have problems coming to a conclusion and making a decision and what is the right option when you've got a decision to keep going or, say, a decision to stopping or one option over the other, it had pretty much said that the way we're wired as humans is that whatever decision we make, we end up justifying it to ourselves that we have made the right decision. It's funny, ever since I heard that and I've listened to it, I've often reflected back wondering about my right decisions that I've that I've said that I've made. And I don't know if you've heard of that as well, uh, or if you know it to be the case, but uh it's it's interesting once you once you learn that little that little fact, it, it actually impacts on how you decide things. Yeah, I've heard that. It's been almost a year since you completed this. What have you taken away and learned and maybe what have you kind of built into your practice now that maybe was different than before? I've learned so much more about myself and self-belief. And it's interesting getting to that finish line. I still, like I said at the start, I often go, did I actually do this? Um, oh, my gosh, I did it. And, you know, it used to be a thing with my husband, like, you know, 
I, I look back at photos and go, I did it. I did it. You know, oh my gosh, I did it. And, you know, that was, that was a big thing. And I remember it was a friend of mine had said to me, because I finished in, remember I had a 73 hour time limit. I finished in just over 66 hours, which was, you know, blow, blows me away now. I don't want to sound like I've got a chip on my shoulder, but I also finished as first female, but I feel that that, I feel that's, that's not a great stat because unfortunately it's also reflective of the fact that there aren't many women at these events. But I turned up as one of a few women and I, and I finished first. And I remember my friend saying, when did you decide you were going to race this? Because you always talked about just, you know, participating. I remember during the event, remember how I said, you, you've got a tracking dot so people can actually track your progress. And I remember during the event, I was getting messages from people saying, wow, Bella, you're doing really well. This person's near you or you're catching up to this person and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I did not sign up to this event to race it. I didn't care where everyone went. I was my own competitor. I was competing against my mind and I didn't really care about positions. But my friend said, when did you decide you were going to race? And it dawned on me. I never decided I was going to race. I finished within 66 hours and limited all my stops because I didn't believe, and to some degree still don't, that I could get to the finish line in time. And so I always pushed myself along during the event thinking even when it looked like I had so many hours to complete the distance, I didn't believe in myself that catastrophe wasn't going to strike and rob me of that finish. So I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And I remember, I think it was like early early after the first two days, and I had ridden 700 kilometres in the first two days. And so I had just over 200 kilometres to ride the next day. And everyone was saying, oh, you've only got 200 kilometres to go, which for our American fans I think is just over 120 miles, which is ridiculous when someone tells you you've only got 120 miles because it's a long damn way to go. <laughs> But I still didn't believe at that point that it was possible. And I think what I've taken is I've learned that I can do a lot. I can do the hard stuff and I can endure the hard stuff. And I do actually have the willpower and fortitude to keep going and to not give up. I think if there's something that I want hard enough, I also know that I need to find and I need to have the passion within myself to want it enough. If you don't want something enough, you don't strive for it or you find reasons to stop and you give yourself the excuse of why stopping is okay. So I think one of the biggest things I've learned is making sure that my motivations for whatever I do are genuine and are things that actually motivate and give me inspiration and fire. It's similar to my changing career. You know, I, I'm i a people person. I'm an extrovert. I loved a lot of the colleagues that I used to work for, but I wasn't passionate about the industry I was in. I wasn't passionate about my expertise. It was wishing my life away. The things that I did genuinely enjoy about my career were the people side of things where I would get up and facilitate training sessions and deliver things and, and give people a new skill set. And my passion for that was more at imparting knowledge to someone and seeing them grow, not the expertise that I was getting paid for nine to five. It was very much of a tangent. And, you know, my path here to France, setting up a cycling business, becoming a travel advisor, helping people on the road and leading on the road and showing people the areas 
I'm passionate about that. It's been really, really hard to get a business off the ground. When you move internationally, you're starting a business in a new career in the travel industry when a pandemic hits and shuts travel down. If you're not motivated and have the fire in yourself to keep going for that goal, it's not going to be worth attaining and you're going to be able to give find many reasons to just give up and go back to your old life. And I think enduring through my ultra event has given me the understanding that I love what I'm doing enough to keep enduring through the hard times to make things work. You talked a lot about my favorite things, which is genuine motivation. And if you have that genuine motivation, you can do incredible things. But do you want to go ahead and give a shout out again where people can find you if they want to come take a cycling trip in France? Do you guide do you guide tours? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Where can we find you? Yeah, okay. So um the the business is called Seek Travel Ride and handily the website is seektravelride.com. So you'll find uh, you know, me there. You'll get to see my face and my crazy curly hair. And on there, people can find a lot of information about cycling in France. And if they want to have some assistance to put their own bespoke tour and holiday together, they can get in touch and we can do an advisory call with them and help them with that as well. This year, I am excited in that I am doing some ride leading as well. So if people want to have a bespoke sort of tour for themselves here in the Pyrenees, led by me in my enthusiastic nature to tell them all the sights and sounds that they otherwise didn't know they were cycling past, they can definitely reach out. Something that I'm super passionate about, though, that I, I, you know, if you're at all in, you know, inspired by people on and hearing about their journeys and their travel and want to get a sense of wanderlust, and it's my podcast. So again, it's called Seek Travel Ride. It's available on all your podcast player apps. Uh, just put Seek Travel Ride in there and you'll find it. And again, the stories are about people who take amazing adventures on a bike and their experiences in doing this. And whether it's people on a round the world bicycle tour or people who have, you know, signed up for a ridiculous ultra endurance event like I did, their stories are phenomenal. And, and it's not about the bike, you know, the bike in the story, it's a connector and the reason why I'm interviewing them, but the reasons and how they did what they did and what they've learned from what they did is, is what gives me such immense joy. I feel such a privilege to be able to speak to my guests and have a, you know, an insight into their story and to be able to share it with people all around the world. I just feel an immense amount of joy for that. And, you know, that's my my passion and my fire. I remember when I was starting a podcast, reading that to have a podcast that people want to listen to, you need to have something that you want to actually do and listen to yourself. And I am motivated. I'm not wishing my life away Monday to Friday to have two days off during a week. But yeah, my podcast, I feel like I've, you know, I've given myself a little side hustle of joy there. And, and yeah, I love meeting people through it. If randomly, sorry, if you have anyone there that's listening to this that has undertaken an amazing adventure by bike, please get in touch with me as well. I would love to, to listen to your story and share it. Thanks again to Bella for the chat about mental toughness. And thanks to the sponsor of this podcast, Level 10 Life Coach. To learn more about their 15-day digital detox, visit level10lifecoach.com slash detox. The biggest thanks goes out to our listeners. Thanks for joining the journey and learning how to be a human being.